0: How many of you remember watching Walker, Texas Ranger? Anybody? Man, he was unstoppable, wasn't he? You know, if you were a bad guy, whatever variety or sort, and Chuck Norris came after you, you know, it was just the end of the road, right? Didn't matter what situation he found himself in, didn't matter whether you thought you had the upper hand, he would do you harm. You had no hope if you were up against Chuck Norris. I was reminded of that this morning when I saw a meme and it had Liam Neeson in his Taken figure for those of you who are familiar with these things see him out there and he was on his phone and he said I will find you and then it had a picture of Chuck Norris and he was on the other end of the line and said and do what and then Liam Neeson said I apologize wrong number and hung up for those of you who grew up around Chuck Norris and familiar with the Liam Neeson of late, there's some humor to that, isn't there? You know, the movies portrayed these two, the shows portrayed these two as basically being invincible, as being the ones that would mete out justice. And if you went up against them, you didn't have hope. But there's a sense in which we, as those who are created in the image of God, when we forsake that image that God has created us in, outside of Christ have no hope, right? We can't stand against the hand of the wrath of God on our own. We've been talking about that in our Sunday morning Bible class, and it's overlapping a little bit with our Wednesday night study right now of grace. The idea that apart from God's grace, you and I have absolutely no hope. We might as well be on the bad guy on the other, <laughs> on the other end of one of Chuck Norris's kicks, right? Because we're going to take it right in the chin. There's nothing we can do about it. And yet in Christ, that's different, isn't it? You know, when we were outside of Christ, we lived without hope. We lived in this world facing death, facing all the things that come to us. And and we, we had nothing to cling to other than whatever worldly possessions and relationships we possessed on this side of eternity. But then we obeyed the gospel and things changed for us, didn't it? we entered into a place where we actually had legitimate hope. Because the one that that we were serving, the one that we are serving, is the one who's already conquered death, is the one whose body isn't left rotting and decaying in the grave, but who on the third day arose to never die again. With the promise being that those who walk after him have the same hope that one day when this mortal has put on immortality we shall find life eternal that's hope and today i want us to turn our attention to hebrews chapter six i want us to study this idea of hope under the title this morning of anchored you and i have an anchor that holds a stay in this life. Now, the thing about an anchor is you have to be attached to it for it to work, right? You know, if you have an anchor on the ship and, and you throw it overboard, I know a lot of them are mechanical now, but let's let's go old school for a moment. And you throw it overboard, but the chain's not connected to anything. The anchor's going to sink. The chain's going to keep going, and you're going to watch the end of the chain go over the side of the boat and into the water. And well, the anchor doesn't do you any good, does it? If it's not attached to the boat in which you're traveling, the anchor does absolutely no good. You can throw it overboard and you're just going to watch it disappear. And our life is that way, isn't it? That if we don't actually anchor our life to Christ, we can think all day long, man, I've got hope. I've got something to sustain me. But if I'm not attached to that hope, it doesn't mean anything at all. I can know Christ. I can even believe in Christ. But if I don't live for Christ, <laughs> There's no real benefit to me. And that's what we want to talk about today when we talk about Anchored. I'll be honest with you. I had a different sermon planned for today. But with Tommy's memorial service and a whole lot of things coming back up with that, this this has been a difficult year so far for for us, hasn't it? We've lost some people that that we loved dearly in this congregation. And some of us have lost others outside of, of just our congregational life here. I thought it better to preach on something other than what I had planned. Nope, don't worry, that sermon's coming too. I'm not going to tell you what it is, I want to say it, but that sermon's coming too. I thought it might be good for us to be reminded of, of our hope this morning. That anchor that we have, that anchor that our sister Lolly and our brother Tommy, the one they were clinging to so much. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 6 and And we're going to start at verse 1. And in these first eight verses, I want you to see the concern that the Hebrews writer has for the brethren to whom he's writing. I want you to see the concern he has for them and understand that the discussion goes back into chapter 5 and even really a little prior to that. But he is concerned about their growth and faithfulness and whether or not they're going to continue to hold on to that chain, that, that anchor. That has gone within the veil. Whether or not they're going to continue to hold on to their, their faith and their obedience to the gospel and the Christ in whom all of that matters. Read these first eight verses with me. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Now, this text neatly divides in, into three sections, doesn't it? When, he, when you look at verses 1 through 3, he, he expresses a desire for them to grow in the faith. We're not going to get into a discussion of what each of these items are this morning. That, that's beyond the scope of what we're trying to accomplish. But he wants them to mature in the faith. He talks about those things that, that are elementary principles, those what we might sometimes call first principles, found, foundational truths. And he says, you need to continue to mature. And my concern is that if if you don't continue to mature, you're going to die. And if you, having known all the good that you know, die, there's not going to be a way to get you back. And you've got to understand that when God trims his vine, remember Jesus' words in John 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And Jesus talks about the Lord doing some cultivating on that vine, doesn't he? In that same text. He says, if you cling to me, you hold on to me, you, you follow my word, you'll remain fruitful. But if you don't, well, you'll be cut out. You'll, you'll be trimmed away. And that's the same illustration the Hebrews writer uses just in a condensed form, isn't it, in these last couple of verses, of this opening section, verses seven and eight. He talks about the soil that bears and how it's blessed and the soil that doesn't bear And how it's cursed. And so when the Hebrews writer expresses concern, he says, My concern is that you need to keep growing in Christ. My concern is that you don't turn back. My concern is that you don't become an object ready to be cultivated out of the kingdom, eternally speaking, by our God. I don't want you to become a curse. Now, the book of Hebrews as a whole seems to be written, doesn't it, to people who are struggling to maintain their faith. People who, well, let's be honest, are leaving behind a heritage, in a sense. The law of Christ, the gospel of Christ, while it is the fulfillment of everything God had been working toward, you're calling the Jews, the Hebrews, From the sacrifices of old, from their synagogues, from so many connections that they have to an entirely different life. And in the first century, this has had consequences for them, just as it does for many today who obey the gospel and the rest of their family doesn't have any interest in it. And now they're trying to live one way and the rest of the house is going a different way. And now they're trying to do this right, but, but everybody else around them is living this way wrong. It's difficult, isn't it? You know, we have brothers and sisters serving as missionaries in countries that are predominantly Muslim. And for some of these young men and young women to obey the gospel, they literally put their lives at risk, don't they? If they confess Christ verbally, the country in which they live might very well tell them the verdict for such is having your head removed from your shoulders. And that's not an exaggeration. And yet these people, these brothers and these sisters who come to believe the gospel, they do it anyways. And Much like these Hebrews, now there is a great gulf and divide between who they were and who they are now and who they once associated with and now who they associate with. And that can be difficult, can't it? That, that can be challenging. And when that persecution comes, when those difficult moments come, and the temptation is going to be there to say, you know what? Is this really worth it? Is what I have believed, what I have embraced, is it really worth it? And we face the same kind of thing in our lives, don't we? Even, even at times surrounded by those that, that we know love the Lord, there are moments of temptation and challenge to our faith. There are moments where you and I have to make a choice. Is it worth it to stick with Christ? Now, intellectually, we know the answer, don't we? Yes, it's worth it. Man, heaven will be worth it all. We say that, don't we? We sing about that. Intellectually, we get it. But whether or not we understand it in principle, and apply it in practice are not the same thing, are they? We might know it's better to choose the Lord, but in that moment, we might find it difficult to actually make that choice. That's where maturing in the faith comes in, doesn't it? That's why the concern for the the, the Hebrews writer here, for his audience, is they need to keep on maturing. Because the more you grow closer to Christ, the less everything else matters. Have you seen some of the pictures from the Apollo 11 missions? Right, It's 50 years here coming up, isn't it? Since Apollo 11. An amazing testimony to human ingenuity. An even more amazing testimony to the way that we were created by our creator to be able to do this. But as the craft approached the moon, the earth got smaller and smaller and the moon loomed larger and larger, didn't it? Think about our life in Christ that way. The more we mature and grow in him, the more his person, his love, his promise, the hope that's in him looms larger and larger in our mind and the smaller and smaller what we left behind becomes. Paul's saying you have gotta go from here to here. And I'm concerned that if you don't, you're gonna fall. You're gonna lose your hope. We can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to, to this struggle in this text. We can relate to that concern because we probably have that concern for ourselves and, and for our brothers and sisters at times, maybe our children. But he doesn't just stay with concern, does he? The writer here moves on to a confidence. and Confidence in two parts. The, the first part of that confidence, our, our second thought is he had confidence in them. He said, I'm I'm confident that you can keep growing. Notice verses 9 through 12. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this matter. He says, though we're concerned about you, we're confident. Confident that you'll grow in your salvation. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So he says, look at what you're doing right now. He said, I'm confident in you because even now, even as you're struggling in your faith, even in this moment, you're still showing faithfulness. You're still showing diligent work toward those in the kingdom. You're ministering, ministering to the saints. He says, I see that you still are clinging on. It says, God is just. He's not going to forget your labors. says you might be persecuted for them. You might be discouraged to do them by, by the community and environment that you're in. But God knows. And how important is that for us to cling to? When we talk about the confidence that He has in them, He's confident that they can remember that the God who loves them and who has saved them knows them. He's confident that they'll grow and do well because He knows that they know the one who knows them. Say that 10 times fast. (laughs) If you look at verse 11, he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, you've been working and even now you work, but what I want you to do is give even more diligence. And obviously there are those amongst them who are doing that, right? Because he says, I want you to imitate those who through what? What are the two things that he mentions here? Notice it again at the end of verse 12. But imitate those who through faith and patience. Through faith and patience inherit the promises. It says you have examples amongst you of brothers and sisters who are holding on, diligently serving, giving everything they have. You can see their faith. You can see their patience. We might say their endurance. They're not giving up, even when they feel like giving up. They're not. They're holding on because they know the one in whom they have trusted. They have faith. And so he says, brethren, I'm confident in you because you know what you've done. And the Lord knows it. I'm confident in you because even now you're doing well. I'm confident in you because I see examples around you that you can follow. (laughs) That's not just a first century thing though, is it? That's not just a first century thing. We have examples amongst us of those who through faith and patient endurance just keep on serving. Just just keep on doing, even even to the end. We've celebrated the life of two of those this year already. I think that's why it hurts so much, right? When we lose a Tommy or we lose a Lolly, we we lose part of the heart of the congregation. Those examples of of just patient endurance and faith, that's why it hurts. But those kinds of people, while we miss them when they're gone, man, they're examples, aren't they? that we can imitate. And it's not just those who have gone on, but there are those amongst us now. I'm not going to start naming names. I don't want to embarrass anybody. And every time I've done that, somebody comes up to me afterwards and say, you shouldn't talk about me like that. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. You're too humble and that's great. But brethren, we have brothers and sisters amongst us in this room, in congregations in the area, who are examples of patience and faith. And the writer says to them, I'm confident, brethren. I'm confident in you. I'm concerned about you, but I'm confident that you can give diligence and keep on keeping on. But the only way you're gonna be able to do that is through faith and patience, right? That's what he wants them to imitate, the faith and patience of the diligent workers. But his confidence directed toward them isn't just in them. His confidence is also in the God that they're serving, isn't it? You know, when you look at his concern, he's concerned because if they fall away, God will judge appropriately. But what happens if you hold on tight? Doesn't God also judge appropriately? Isn't he faithful to those who through faith and patience keep on enduring. So while verses 1-8 through 8 deal with his concern for the brethren and verses 9-12 through 12 express his confidence that the brethren can sustain this, can be diligent, can follow the example of faith and patience, he's also confident that they'll do that because of the God that they serve and who he is. Now, if I have faith and patience, my faith and patience has to be in someone, right? Why, who, who am I patiently enduring for? Is it just for myself? No, it's for the one I'm serving. In whom have I placed my faith? Well, is it in myself? No, it's in the one I'm serving, isn't it? If I'm going to be a diligent servant and cling to the hope, if I am going to be anchored, I'm going to be anchored in the one who allows me to confidently pursue his work in faith and patience. Notice what he says here in verses 13 through 20 and We're going to divide this into two separate sections, but first read verses 13 through 18 with me. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Now, this is going back to Genesis chapter 22. In particular, verses 16 and 17. Now, what happened in Genesis chapter 22? What is the the thematic moment? Of that chapter, do you remember? Abraham is present, but someone else is too, right? His son Isaac. And what is Abraham about to do in Genesis chapter twenty-two? He's about to offer his son at the commandment of God. And God says to God says to Abraham. In that text, having seen his willingness to offer his son, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he patiently endured, he obtained a promise. After who patiently endured? Abraham. After he had patiently endured, well, what did he endure? The commandment of God and the fulfillment of it. Can you imagine what kind of, of <laughs> going back and forth had to be happening in Abraham's mind and heart and soul? He's told to offer his son. Now, we know later in the book of Hebrews, he did it by faith, believing that God could raise him from the dead. We we know that. But even still, think about yourself. Aren't there moments where you have acted in faith, doing what was right, even though you know it was hard, but even in those moments, wasn't there that part of you, that voice in the back of your head saying, are you sure about this? Are you you absolutely certain about this? You know, if you just did this, that'd be a whole lot easier. If you just kept your mouth shut, you wouldn't have to worry about it, right? Don't we have those moments where even in the midst of doing what is right, there's part of us that's wondering whether or not we really ought to be doing what is right? Abraham here is described as having endured. Now, it's not just that moment, but there's a whole many years here, aren't there? Because you've got to go back to Genesis 12 when God first made a promise to Abraham. When he said, get out from your father's house and from your country and go where I'm going to show you. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he followed. He goes to this land and God says, you're not going to possess it. You're just going to be a pilgrim in it. But just trust me and I'll give you a son. Well, the years keep ticking and Abraham's not getting any younger. And Sarah's barren. Still no children. God visits Abraham and says, this time next year, you'll have a child. Sarah's laughing, right? Well, my master at this age, Sire a child? There ain't no way that's happening. Sarah, why are you laughing? Abraham's endurance wasn't just at the moment of having to try and attempt to do what any father would struggle to do that's offer his son. But Abraham had patiently endured all along, hadn't he? Because God promised, but God delayed in fulfilling the promise of the son. Then it made God unfaithful, but it made Abraham learn patience and endurance, didn't he? And the Hebrews writer recounts this to prove one thing. Not that Abraham endured, though that's certainly important, but to prove that God is faithful. He made a promise, and because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. And so, after he patiently endured, he obtained obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. The, The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Two immutable things, who God is and what he said. There's no one greater, Saul, swear by me. And two, I give you my word. His word will not change, and he will not change. Those are the two immutable things. We have his word, and we have him. And the story of Abraham proves that those things are certain, doesn't it? That he is who he says he is. He said, I'll give you a child. No one could have done it but God. That proves he is who he says he is. And two, he said, I'll give you a child, and then he actually did it, right? His word is certain. He is God and his word is certain. Now, to make it clear to us, the children, the heirs of that promise, that God keeps his promises, he swore this oath so that you and I might have confidence in him. When we look back at the account of Abraham, we can live with hope saying, "Okay, God has said endure. God has said, hold on. God has said, be faithful. God has said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He has said, be a pilgrim in this land. Don't put down roots. Don't love the world where things that are in it, but love me. He said, do these things, and I will give you an eternal home with me. That's what he has said to us. And Abraham's account is an earthly confirmation of a heavenly proclamation that when he gave Abraham his seed, and confirmed his word, that to us is confirmation that when he promises us eternal life, when he promises us to just endure like Abraham did and all will be well, that we can take him at his word because he is God and his word is immutable just as he is. Now, those Hebrew folks needed to hear that. Those brethren needed to hear that. The writer says, yes, I'm confident that you'll do better, but I'm confident you'll do better because of the faith and endurance you'll have in Christ, in God. Confidence in God. And so notice verses in 19 and 20, this hope we have, he says, we might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, yeah. where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Yes. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Now, when you're on the boat, you put the anchor down the water that it might hit the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. That it might lodge in the bottom so the boat won't go anywhere. <laughs> You want it to stay pretty much right there, right? It's the purpose of the anchor. The anchor is there. You can't see it, can you? You know, if you're in that shallow of water, you generally don't need an anchor. (laughs) You typically can't see where the anchor has lodged, but you know it's there because the boat's not moving, right? You and I can't see into the presence (laughs) behind the veil, can we? But we know Christ has entered in. And we know that God is a keeper of his word. And we know that God is God. And so this hope we have is an anchor behind the veil. It it helps us to cling to the one who has redeemed us. Our anchor isn't in this world, in this moment. We, We don't cling to anything below, do we? To find ultimate peace and comfort. To find hope. Because what is there in this life that we can hold on to that won't eventually fail us? There's nothing temporal, is there? There's, There's nothing below, as we sometimes say, that we can rely on without fail. Even those closest to us Can't always bear us, can it? Mm -hmm. And eventually one of us, in a marriage, (laughs) most likely to go before the other. Our friends are going to pass. We might pass and leave them. It's a hard moment. It's a difficult time. And so we need something and someone more than even one another. We need Christ himself and God our Father. We got to hold on tight to them in this life. That anchor we have, it enters into the presence. Now that's an allusion to the Old Testament and and, well, even in the New Testament with the Temple of Solomon and later the Herodian Temple, the, the Temple of Herod. And you had the, the courts and the surrounding area, right? But, but you'd enter into the holy place and there was a table of showbread and the candle and lampstand and some of those things like that. And, and yet that's not where the Ark of the Covenant was, was it? Now only the priests were allowed in that far, but, but the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was that that was in the most holy place. And only the high priest was permitted to enter into that place, right? And only for certain occasions. <laughs> because that's where God's presence was. And so when the Hebrews writer says, we have an anchor that's behind the bell, he, he's imagining, in a sense, spiritually speaking, that anchor has been cast into the very presence of God. And so our anchor is not in this life, but is in the God who is going to bring us into the next one. And so our anchor hasn't found itself a rock at the seabed to cling to, but our anchor has found the hand of God to cling to. to the lamb who was slain, to the sure promises of our righteous and faithful creator. But we can't let go of the chain that binds us to him, can we? We can't let go of our faith and our patient endurance. We've got to keep growing. We've got to keep maturing. We've got to keep faithfully and diligently serving we can't stop that because the minute we do is the minute we let go of the anchor that holds us through this life and man this life if you haven't experienced it yet it'll get you eventually won't it now i dare say there's anyone here who hasn't already experienced something a health scare of your own and your family the death of someone you love man listen The devil and sin and death, they do everything they can to make us feel like there's no use in keeping on, keeping on. Because what's the point? But Christ has shown us there's something beyond this. And because he's entered into the veil and we are certain there is a resurrection and there is life and there is eternity and there is God and there is his word, we keep clinging and we keep pushing, don't we? Because we have hope that is anchored beyond the veil we don't lose faith we keep increasing in faith we don't give up when the world gives us everything it has to give we keep enduring because we're clinging to the one who has already shown us we can make it through I want to point out one word as we close here <clears throat> Did you notice the word consolation at the end of verse 18 there? <laughs> that by two mutable things which impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. This word is interesting. When we think of consolation, we, we think of comfort, don't we? we think, of, think of some kind of comfort. We, we, describe, we, we sometimes refer to consolation prizes. You know, somebody gets the big prize, but. but you know, we, we know it stinks that you lost, so here, here's a consolation prize, right? Remember, uh, if you ever played on sports team, you know you made it to that championship game, but you didn't win it? Folks who win, they get the big trophy, right? They're picking that thing up, they're celebrating, they come over and you know that thing's like gay tall, they hand you a trophy that's like this tall. <laughs> Second place, it's a consolation prize. I, that happened to us. Fifth grade basketball. I, don't, I won't ever forget that. We got the consolation prize. I haven't got a technical in that game. The only time I ever got a technical. I won't get into the cheap refereeing or anything like that, you know. But that was the consolation prize. There wasn't much comfort in that. There wasn't much encouragement in that. It was like, sorry, you lost, and we don't want you to feel too bad. Man, that doesn't help this word has more than that kind of idea in it it actually has a blend of two meanings. one yes is comfort one is comfort but the other is exhortation you see when the hebrews writer tells us that by knowing god and knowing his word are immutable we have strong consolation. What he's saying is when life gets tough, knowing who God is and knowing that his word is sure, it not just provides you comfort in the difficult moment, but it exhorts you. It pushes you. It encourages you to keep going forward. That is what the Hebrews writer wants us brethren to understand. Is that as long as you cling to God and you cling to his word that you know are true and certain. When life gets rough, when the faith seems like it's worth giving up, that fact that God is God and his word is true. It won't just comfort your soul and say, "Hey, listen. It's all right. I know it's tough, but it's going to push you forward. It's going to say, "You keep on getting on. You keep on going. You keep on serving. Be faithful. Endure till the end because you know who you serve and you know what he has said." Now, brothers and sisters, We know the one that we serve. We serve the God of heaven and earth who has created all things and by whom all things are sustained. We serve him. And we live by his word, his word that has promised you and has promised me that when we (coughs) endure faithfully, even to the point of death, there is a crown of life laid up for us whom God will give to each of us. Don't give up. Don't stop now. Man, you've come too far. God has blessed you too much for you to turn around and give up. Knowing who God is and what He said, keep on pushing me on. The Hebrews writer was concerned that these brethren weren't growing, but he was confident that they could because he was confident in the one who they had placed their faith in. Now, sometimes we're concerned for one another. Sometimes we're concerned for ourselves. <coughs> but brethren, I know your works. I've seen it on display, not just this last couple of weeks, but these many years this month marks 15 years since I came to Peninsula it was June 27 2004 first Sunday in the pulpit in the Radisson Hotel dockside ballroom you guys remember that for those of you who were back there thankfully they hadn't kicked us out that Sunday Look at the good that God has done through us, through all of us. Look at the blessing that's come as Peninsula and Hampton became one again. Look at how good God has been to us as we have an eldership. Something I sometimes wonder if I'd ever get to see. Brethren, like the Hebrews writer, I know your works. I know your care and concern. It's been on display. Yes, even even these last couple weeks, these last few months, with those in our congregation who have needed us to love them and care for them. So I'm confident in you. That you won't give up. That you'll keep on pushing on. Why? Because all of us know who we've trusted, don't we? And we know what He has promised to us. So when we leave out these doors. Let's not let go of that chain. Let's not let go of that anchor. Let's keep clinging to it. Let's hold on to it. And let's go out in this world and keep on keeping on. Let's serve one another and let's serve our fellow man and let's preach the gospel of Christ in faithfulness. Let's patiently endure in faith for the glory of God and to the salvation of our souls. Now, friend if you're struggling this morning, brother, sister, if you're struggling, if you have felt that chain slipping through your hands because of doubt or dismay or whatever else has been coming your way, please let us know. Come come forward. Let us pray together. If it's sin that has turned your eyes away so you don't even see what's happening, repent this morning and come back. Come back to the one who can be trusted. Turn back away from the devil who's nothing more than a liar. And if you're out there this morning, you have not yet been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. My friend, can I say something in, in all honesty to you? If you know you ought to and you haven't, you're a fool for putting it off. Because you could be living by hope and faith. And you're choosing instead to live by what? And for what? What? Be wise and choose faith in Christ Jesus. Hearing his gospel, (laughs) believing him to be the son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing his name, and being immersed for the remission of your sins. If you want to be anchored, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You're only going to be able to do it through Christ and in Christ. Now, the sermon is yours. Brother Rodney's picked an invitation song for us. This is an opportunity for you to come, whether in repentance again or in repentance and immersion for the first time. We plead with you. Take hold of the anchor beyond the veil as we stand and sing to encourage you.